This episode of the podcast was recorded on the 14th of September 2021 at home in Wicklow and it is a wide ranging jump about, jump up, jump down conversation around the idea of shame prompted by a friend's reaction to to an Australian documentary on negative body image and the the toxic effect of popular media and unrealistic ideals of beauty so i take that as my launch pad and i run with it and i talk about the male introduction to the sexual objectification of women my own experience in that area and i go on to look at shame and how shame is has been depicted in movies and so yeah it's a bit of a a bit of a long ranging winding road but hopefully hopefully the through line is there for you to hang on to and go on the journey with me uh i think it's a really relevant discussion and it's something I've certainly thought about a lot in my life. And I hope I hope you get something out of it. Okay. So uh, yeah. I'll see you there. Talk to you soon. Ooh, not gonna change my mind. The dream Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. How's it going? Welcome. Welcome back to this week's effort (laughs) this week's broadcast broadcast from hashtag blessed my little piece of heaven my little piece of paradise down here in the Wicklow Hills Um, okay so there's there's a lot to get into a lot to get into Uh, the ideas for this episode just started popping in my head all on the back of <laughs> all on the back of I'm laughing because this has you know this wouldn't have happened to me a mere month ago but all on the back of a Facebook post so now that I am actively out there trying to flaunt my wares on social media and uploading bits and pieces on particularly Facebook and Instagram all all part of an effort to raise the profile of this podcast all all part of an effort to attract eyeballs to attract traffic to the podcast so because i've been doing that of course inevitably i have been doing what millions of people have been doing for quite a few years now and having an occasional browse of Facebook and friends put stuff up and you find yourself just doing that little scroll stroking your screen stroking very masturbatory stroking the screen and a friend a former colleague from Melbourne a lovely Brazilian woman that I worked with um, also a cat lover so I mean as soon as I knew she was a cat lover she went up in my esteem and I remember she offloaded some cat treats (laughs) to me that her cat had rejected and I offered them to Marlon the head of marketing 
uh, of the podcast and she too rejected them. So, you know, you know, a, a cat treat company has failed when you've got international cats rejecting your product. And I'm not going to name and shame that company because I'm better than that. Anyway, this friend of mine, former colleague, she put up a post on Facebook this week, which was her own personal response to a two-part Australian documentary TV show that has just aired in the last few days. And the show is called Mirror, Mirror. And it's presented by uh, a guy called Todd Sampson, who is a Canadian uh, who lives and has been living in Australia for years and has quite a high profile presence on Australian TV um, and is a very sort of intelligent interrogative sort of presenter interviewer uh, always looking at aspects of human psychology and certainly when I ever saw him on TV he always came across like a, an interesting uh, interesting guy funny guy um, not afraid to share his opinions but considered intelligent and yeah had a lot going on anyway grand so this show mirror mirror which, yeah, as I say, went out on Australian TV earlier this week. I don't know how you'd access it over here. Um, I suppose there are ways and means to do this, depending on your TV package, or if you're going down more illicit roads. You might you might be one of those Irish people who has the ubiquitous dodgy box. I love that. I mean, within weeks of returning to Ireland last year, people were saying, get yourself a dodgy box. You know, get the dodgy box and you, you can watch anything, anything, anything in the world. <laughs> I just I just consider that so Irish, you know, this this, you know, gleeful embrace of something completely illegal and transgressive. And it's about getting access, access to content, access to movies, to sport, to stories, because that's a huge part of, I think, of the Irish psyche, that immersion immersion in everything give me more i want to know more anyway the dodgy box if you have a dodgy box you might be able to do this channel 10 australian tv whatever okay anyway the show is about i haven't seen it myself so i just had to look it up but i mean i got the general gist from what my friend put up on facebook simply it's about the the warped relationship many of us have with our bodies and the appearance of our bodies. So fundamentally, uh, a show exploring the often toxic and disproportionately critical relationship we have with our bodies. I feel like I touched on this recently in an episode. I can't remember. I can't remember what it was. Anyway, that doesn't matter either. But the I gather this show really looks at how the the presentation of of beauty, the presentation of physical beauty, the human body, uh, how that presentation is manipulated and promoted and broadcast by some major players in the world. I mean, I reduce that concept to sort of pop culture in general, pop culture advertising, popular media, movies, music, you know, whatever, all of that. Uh, you know, there's money. There's a there's a, that insatiable thirst for money underpinning it all and the presentation of the beauty ideal and how that, for many people, just taps into something 
irresistible, beguiling, bewitching, um, and something that can take over uh, our internal narratives and take over our lives. Some of us, um, you know, many of us, I guess. And certainly I would argue that women are largely the, uh, I'm going to use the word victims, you know, women are largely the victims of this type of mass proper propagandizing of of female beauty in particular and you know the industries that really can feed into it are as i say definitely advertising and entertainment probably uh, pornography as well so i mean i'll definitely touch on that in a little while the whole you know the sexual objectification of women is never more evident than in porn um and that is in its various iterations you know before the you know the mass availability of you know pornography and sexual imagery uh was available via you know the internet and devices handheld devices or smartphones whatever you know going back to more innocent times those images were presented rather more chastely in uh you know magazines i guess and newspapers etc i'll come back to my own journey in that area uh, a little while later in the podcast but to go back to my friend she was putting up her response to watching the program first of all she was saying how much she loves todd Sampson, thinks he's such a great guy and then she just shared a bit of her own story her own journey of having really negative body image in brazil and referred to wearing you know hot jeans on um you know on beaches like when she was out just to cover up her her body she you know mentioned um you know being ashamed of i suppose her body shape and being hairy kind of dark um and i you know i read it and i thought you know wow it's you know brave of her to to share that information out there on social media but she was making the point that she wants to challenge the narrative and challenge the, the this the, this received idea of of beauty and of course it doesn't just affect women it can affect men as well doubtless it does i mean we live in we live in the word photogenic is coming into my mind that's not the right word but we're living in a time when the curation of personal image has never ever been more prevalent how we're living in a time when the tools to curate your personal image have never been more widespread and accessible and we're also living in an age when the successful presentation of a desirable image can be an avenue to a certain level of success and a certain level of wealth and financial security um and you know that's that's the world of uh influencers um so, you know social in social media influencers instagram influencers youtubers and you don't have to be anybody famous. I mean, this is what's so attractive and seductive and addictive about it. Uh, you can start creating your own stuff, presenting yourself, uh, and, you know, these perfected 
images of yourself whether that's work you're doing in your own time to work on your body or your perfect your uh your your, your makeup regime or model certain clothes or and then use the tools that are available to enhance all of that and make everything so um readily consumable in in, in you know to 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 our eyes to that part of our brain that wants to get that hit again and again and again um but yeah so first first you know really what i want to say is like first of all i was like well done well done to my my friend for doing that and you know raising it and sharing her own story um but i was reflecting on it afterwards so i wanted i wanted to sort of you know send her a comment and just go you know well done or fair play or whatever and you know but of course my brain just starts going to like maybe a more complex analysis and I started to write something a bit more um layered I suppose or a little bit more psychoanalytical and I thought hold on a second that isn't the place for this because my brain my brain just started running with this idea of of shame and fundamentally like I, I feel like that's a, a central idea here and I just felt oh I, I think there's 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 a lot of meat here to uh, perhaps sustain more than a Facebook comment and I just I, I had that image in my head of this friend of mine deciding no I can't go to the beach and I can't I'm not going to wear a bikini I'm going to put on a pair of trousers and cover myself up and that idea I thought of the compulsion to to hide oneself the compulsion to conceal oneself to cover oneself up i just thought well at the heart of that then is is shame you know i'm i'm ashamed of how i appear i'm ashamed of who i am i don't want to be seen but i have to go out i have to go out and be amongst people i have to circulate i have to present myself and then you have this you know what what must be a terrible conflict and battle that has to be overcome to put yourself out there in the world when the internal voice is lit up with you know self-criticism and self-consciousness and i mean i i i i would argue that you know we've all experienced some of that in our lives at different times and maybe you know, maybe you're still someone in your life, whatever stage of life you're at, you, you may still have aspects of that. Um, and certainly, I mean, I don't know. I mean, gosh, like, like uh, as a <laughs> as a white male, I guess I haven't been uh, exposed to the same pressures or the same expectations of desirability and the same expectations of physical beauty and I think that would be true for many many men that they're not subjected to that and yet women from a very young age and I mean this is not a newsflash I'm not telling you anything you don't already know but like you know women and and girls from a very young age are presented with the idea of prettiness and beauty and 
looking lovely and all of that kind of rhetoric which you know feeds into that that you know that that relationship between how i appear and you know a positive response so if i appear lovely pretty beautiful etc i get a positive response from the outside world and so prettiness loveliness beauty becomes it's a sort of a, a value system um and again like i said that's not that's not um i'm not breaking new ground just you know by explaining that but of course it becomes it becomes insidious over time when to not be that leaves you in the shade to not be that becomes an inherent criticism or an inherent failure and you know you're not being looked at objectively um but you are being looked at as an object if that's not a contradiction in terms and the 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 sort of the extra the extra sort of whammy on top of that i guess for a, a a young you know a girl adolescent young woman is the introduction of of sexuality and sexual desire desirability and that sexual objectification which of course is a uh, a sort of a monstrous element in in life and i i i'm not trying to say monstrous in terms of evil and evil demonic vindictive but monstrous in terms of the scale the scale of that that sort of um that element of existence that that door being opened in one's consciousness that oh i'm i'm a sexual thing and then again the idea of worth and value being caught up in sexual uh currency or you know sexual a sexual index where again to be sexually desired brings with it uh, an approval rating and not to be sexually desired is a form of rejection is again a form of of failure or failing to live up to a certain expectation um and you know men you know young men you know we're like we're handed down a certain a certain uh rhetoric or a certain you know rhetorical kind of structure from older men as kids and from the movies that we watch where the primacy of female sexuality trumps almost everything else and i believe that that has always contributed to and continues to contribute to a particularly straight male conspiracy of understanding that female desirability is always on the table 
it's always there to be discussed and poured over and it's always there the 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 matrix of desirability is always ready at hand waiting to be uh applied to 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 women and i think when i was a boy i i sort of instinctively made a distinction between women who were more obviously objectified in movies and music videos and advertising and the uh this i suppose that the pornographic material that uh, i had access to in the early 80s <laughs> which would have amounted to um a couple of issues of playboy smuggled somewhere around the house probably belonging to my father um not my mother i suppose so yeah it would have been my father <laughs> um i do remember myself my older brother and one of our cousins not the cousin who lives uh, who lives here at hashtag blessed but another cousin i remember us sitting in an unplugged chest freezer like a box freezer with a little torch pouring over the pages uh the relevant pages we weren't reading the articles i can assure you of that the 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 photographic <laughs> the, the photographs uh the, the the pictures that were of particular interest to us um in a playboy magazine in this box freezer i mean the places you had to go for a bit of a bit of privacy um but i i made the distinction i think then even between okay these aren't real you know whether it's a, a movie star or uh, a dancer or a musician or a singer or a model like a nude model in in playboy and i had no i had no judgment i wasn't applying any sort of judgment moral judgment to those women in playboy for example because i just thought okay that's something that some women do and isn't it lovely (laughs) but i made a distinction between those women and then women in real life and when I felt older male figures in my life were overtly commenting on or sexualizing, you know, women that we knew or, you know, women, you know, that were, were there and were real <laughs> breathing human things, uh, then I felt a conflict. I felt this doesn't feel right. I felt like a... I suppose that sort of sting of shame that this is fundamentally I think I tapped into this is disrespectful because yeah the, the I mean in, in, in my my young brain or my young kind of moral sensibility I just sort of knew that the the girl or the young woman in question this is not how she wants to be spoken about this is well, that was my that was my that was my that was my instinct. I don't know. I have no idea what she thought or felt. I'm not presuming that, but my instinct was: I don't think she'd like to be spoken about this way, or sort of salivated and drooled over lasciviously by, you know, by the men, you know, by all the men who come within uh, a few feet of her. And I made a further distinction that 
amongst my contemporaries, it was different. It was a different set of rules. And I felt, you know, I, I just felt instinctively that it was sort of all is fair in love and war. And we were all, you know, grappling with our emerging kind of desires and hormonal impulses. And the girls that we were interested in or lusted after, I mean, they were our, our classmates, our, our schoolmates. And there was something that was, well, it's, I just felt it was a two-way street. And you're handed down, as a young man, you're handed down the model of girls are there to be pursued. That's the game. You know, they, they won't be pursuing you. And I certainly felt, <laughs> in my case, that it was highly unlikely that anyone was going to be pursuing me. Um, I, I, and now I, I need to qualify that. It wasn't like I was bathing in self-loathing. I, I wasn't, you know, I, I, I don't know what I thought. But I, I, it wasn't based on I'm disgusting or I'm physically repellent. I just thought I was a bit of a goober and I just thought whatever it is that girls find desirable, I don't have it <laughs> because I think I was too much of a clown or an idiot or a wally or I don't know what. Um, I think fundamentally I just wasn't cool and I didn't have that sort of, as a, you know, as a, as a teenager, I wasn't putting out this sort of... Uh, hard to get vibe <laughs> I was like I won't be hard to get at all I'm just going to stand here and you can come and get me anytime you want and I, I gather that that's not particularly attractive <laughs> um, but in any case the, 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 the what I want to talk about today I'm not I don't want to get stuck and I haven't I'm not getting caught up in specifically the body image idea I mean this is a broad ranging discussion or monologue as the case may be about shame and the, the doorway that kind of opened the discussion was my friend's post about negative body image and I am interested then in this idea of beauty versus desire and I think I think that's part of the confusion. I think that's part of the confusion that is in this conversation, is in the mix of how we see ourselves. And it, I don't want to use a phrase as naff as, you know, beauty is skin deep or beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That just won't cut it. That won't address the complexity of something like body dysmorphia, um, of the skewed lens that can take over how we see ourselves and how we can be horrified by what we see when we look in the mirror uh, or, or when we yeah when when we compare ourselves to these idealized versions of beauty but going back to Going back to my childhood consumption of occasional, I hasten, I hasten to add, occasional consumption of what now would be regarded as very innocent, um, soft, pornographic images. You know, I, I think the idea then of comparing what is beautiful with what is desirable, and I suppose desirable in the in the sexual sense, they 
I think that's two different parts of the brain. I think that's two different parts of our being because we can see beauty in many, many different things. But we are talking primarily about female beauty, male beauty, the the the, the human the human being as an object of beauty, the human being also as an object of desire. And I suppose my feeling was looking at those Playboy images as a kid was, okay, this is desirable. And it, I suppose, lit up the stirrings of lust um, and sexual desire and it you know beauty was sort of just i don't know it was it was a it was there as a secondary factor because there was something about the presentation of apparent sexual availability and the presentation of apparent female sexual desire that was that was what was alluring um because even as a kid, I suppose you recognize maybe that um, there was something about the, the made up female face, a female face with uh, with makeup that didn't that, that was that was kind of dissonant because in your normal life getting around, a lot of women just didn't have that look um, and if there were female friends of my my parents who or perhaps would lean more towards that side of things, being a little bit more glamorous, or wear makeup that would have fallen into, you know, more in that category of um, being more obvious or yeah, glamorous. I guess you know, little light bulbs would go off somewhere, and you you draw the connection. And I guess that is part of that is part of the discussion. But I'm wondering at what point does anyone male or female doesn't matter i mean at what point does anyone start to sift through the sift through the the messaging at what point does anyone start to sift through the presented ideals the presented images the presented or received rhetoric at what point do we start to sift through that and decipher the component parts and go okay well what's what is beauty what is sex what is the combined package and where is the person like where where is the person in all of this because the outward appearance is is just that it's just an outward appearance it's just the shell and i think the challenge for a lot of young people and i mean young and i'll give you an example of this in a second is to come to that realization that that's all it is. It is just the outward appearance of something that when it's truly genuine, it, 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 it's much more of an internal force and it's an internal energy and it's something that's felt, not just seen. And that's that's I think that is a key distinction because so much of this is about the aesthetic and what the aesthetic fires in us. And it's not like our brains are not surely wired 
for things that appear beautiful and attractive like there's something about the the naturalness of uh of symmetry in in nature in in the in the in the found world in what we were what we have been born into and that's what i think our brain makes sense of that and derives or interprets that as positive and right um and that is in the mix that is in this mix of perfect presentation that is in the mix of the presentation of perfection and the pursuit of perfection through whatever means uh whether that's body sculpture like physical hard work like hard labor in the gym in you know with the weights and perfecting a physique um you know you, you think of michelangelo's david and think back to the the the, the, the sculptures and paintings and depictions of human form throughout time in, in the arts and how they were presented and the, the faithful representation of, of an idealized anatomy. That is something that has interested and fascinated us. You think of da Vinci's illustrations. Um, so it's not like this is a new thing, but the you know the, the the shaming the shaming aspect the shaming aspect of failing to meet those expectations that's that's the destructive element here um and i'm gonna i'm gonna go into shame more now in a second but first let me return i mentioned a second ago you know young people getting these messages i remember working as a teacher in 2009 i was working in a secondary school a high school uh, locally here and the one of the, the girls in the class and she could have I think she was a first year which would have made her about 13 and she had a pencil case it was a playboy pencil case on her desk and I was like oh you know I didn't make a big deal about it but I was like oh you got a got a playboy pencil case you know what what can you tell me about that and she got a bit giggly and a little bit sort of self-conscious but was sort of you know nervously amused and we got talking about it and she said oh well you know I have I have that on my my bed at home and I was like oh she said yep my, my 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 duvet set my duvet cover and my pillow um as playboy as well and I was like right okay and I mean I said like do you know I mean do you know what Playboy is now I guess around that time I'm not sure if it was still on but wasn't that Playboy Girls of the Playboy Mansion wasn't that a that was the MTV show MTV reality show where Hugh Hefner had was three there was three girls in particular who were like his Playboy girls who lived with him at the mansion and Hugh Hefner I guess was in his 70s at that stage and it was all a bit strange and creepy but I, you know, I was just wondering, does this kid know anything about like the history of, you know, the magazine, you know, launching the magazine as a, as, a, as a men's sort of lifestyle magazine, you know, the sort of playboy bachelor lifestyle um, and that sort of history. I mean, I, you know, I suspected she didn't 
And so it proved because she was sort of giggling, laughing nervously. And then she was like, yeah, you know, I do know what it is. You know, Playboy, it's... Um, and then she kind of got a bit whispery and she said, oh, it's a, you know, they're, you know, they're, they're, they're prostitutes. And I was like, oh, oh. And I was just, you know, I, I, I tried to kind of go, well, you know, I don't think that's exactly what it is, to be fair. And, you know, she's 13, so I wasn't going to go deep on that one. But I just, yeah, you know, I, you know, I, I didn't, I, as I said, I didn't try to make a big deal about it. I was kind of interested, but I don't know. It felt to me like something something was a bit off wasn't it come on i mean it's not i'm not being i'm not being a puritan here i'm not being all stuffy and clutching my pearls i just thought this is this is some strange some strange messaging being handed down here um because she's got the wrong idea about what it is it's a really bad idea about you know the, the her interpretation of playboy being equals to prostitution uh and yet that's what she's got on her bed at home as this kind of affirmation of yeah, of, of female beauty, I guess. Um, but it was all just a bit mixed up and confused. And there was nothing exceptionally concerning about that student. She seemed like a very nice young girl. Um, and she certainly wasn't overtly sexual or overtly sexualized herself. But I don't know. I don't know what you make of that. I don't know what you make of the sort of the playboy iconography becoming something completely innocuous and in no way loaded with the with the subtext of sexism and the sort of the, the fingers being stuck up to to feminism in a way kind of going yeah we're a playboy girl, a playboy bunny is happy to be just that and is happy to be an object of male desire and a sexual commodity. Um, I mean, I mean, that's a massive conversation, isn't it? And I don't really know if I want to go there because I mean, I don't have a, I don't have a, a big, I have no moral stance on that. Uh, my feeling always is if we're talking specifically about, you know, female objectification, and if you're talking about ways to make money via the embrace of that objectification, whether that's being a nude model, whether that's being a playboy girl, whether that's been, you know, working in porn or whether that's prostitution, if a woman has agency and that's her choice, I'm like, yeah, do what you have to do. Um, it's like it's a tough world out there and this is you know this is not me advocating <laughs> it's not me advocating girls if you're thinking about a career prostitution might be might be a good choice i'm not saying that i'm just not judging it i'm not that those girls are not less valuable um or less worthy of you know of an esteem that i would extend to to all women um that's kind of the point i'm making the so where does the shame come from then shame is if we go back to the body image idea that shame becomes internalized and 
that is when it is a truly destructive force, surely. So, because what we're doing then, when we internalize shame, and I'm going to kind of branch out now with the sort of different types of shame, and this is not going to be comprehensive by any means, but just a few things came to me as I was reflecting on this idea. But internalized shame, I believe, is something we can all relate to. I mean, certainly, I feel there was, um, you know, there was modes of parenting that I was exposed to as a kid, and my brothers may agree with me, where, you know, shame was part of that. Not in a... Uh, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here to not misrepresent my childhood or the parenting uh, methods of my parents. But I think when, you know, when a child is made to feel bad for whatever reason, it doesn't matter what the intention of the parent is. Like shame is a destructive and, um, and profoundly shaping force. And certainly I feel that's something that was a part of my childhood. Um, And it is, as I say, it's something that does become internalized. And it's interesting, actually, just I was looking at Todd Sampson, that Canadian uh, presenter and TV dude in Australia. And that that, was his show that kind of prompted all of this. I was I was looking at something that he had put up on um on on his Facebook feed and it was just a little cartoon and it was I I I just glanced at it earlier I can't remember what the image was it might have been like a a stick figure of a parent wagging a wagging a finger at a smaller stick figure of a child and the caption was remember when you criticize a child, I think that, that was the word they used, criticize. When you criticize a child, um, they don't stop loving you. They stop loving themselves. Um, and yeah, I just thought, well, it's very, I mean, you know, I say it and you kind of go, yeah, again, it seems obvious, but it was very, it's a very powerful little statement. And I mean, I see the word criticize and I think, well, let's change that word out and put in shame. So when you shame a child, they don't stop loving you. They stop loving themselves. I mean, this taps into my own fears about my parenting. And you know what I was speaking about last week when I was expressing concern about my, my occasional anger. And this, you know, these occasional outbursts where I feel this isn't good. Because if this is a lasting impact on my daughter and it's a you know it's 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 a breakdown of 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 the safety of the house and it, it's it's a breakdown of that trust that my my father is a good person to spend time with and if then the deeper implication is he's angry because i've done something wrong and then i've done something wrong therefore i've failed in some way and then there's shame attached to that because my dad's furious about something I mean, this taps into a fear that I have that, oh my God, I don't want to have that terrible impact on my daughter. Um, and hopefully by examining it, uh, I can just raise my own self-awareness and 
just rein that shit in because I don't want to be a part of that. And yeah, anyway, but it's like you have to, I guess I just I have, to, I have to live with whatever the consequences are. I communicate with my daughter as well as I can without overloading her and hope she has the capacity to, to recognize when I put my hands up and go, I, I failed. I messed up and I'm and I'm sorry. But the the fear of course then is the internalized shame which becomes like a stain or this weight that we carry around or this shadow self that is is as as present and as potent as engaged in our reality as our outward self if uh, if that makes sense i'm just going to take a quick drink here sorry and that that's a terrible burden it's a terrible it's a terrible presence to have to to live with it's a terrible presence to be a, to be with you at all times and i suppose the the hope is that at some point on your own journey, you find a way to dispel that voice, to quiet it, to eradicate that presence from your life or from your internal narrative so you can live more more fully, you know, so you can live, um, you can live lighter, if you know what I mean, um, that you're not weighed down and sort of tormented like you've got a bag of rocks hanging off you that's constantly pulling you down towards the towards the ocean floor um i mean i think of i think of uh when i say the word stain i i, I think of macbeth i think of the shakespeare play macbeth and of course lady macbeth at a later stage in the play being in a sort of a pre-death state of psychosis where she's convinced her hands are covered in blood the blood of the slain uh, king duncan whose trust herself and her husband um broke when they they killed him when macbeth killed him in his sleep and that's the undoing of the macbeths that was their bid for greatness and they they couldn't live with the stain of that shame the shame of the the shattering of their you know well certainly for macbeth the shattering of his moral his moral gauge his 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 moral barometer um and he betrayed his values and killed the father figure uh aided and abetted by his wife but ultimately she succumbs to her 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 guilt and her fear of retribution and her fear of being caught by the the demons of her conscience and somehow you know the the the, the stain of shame that i'm talking in a general sense about that's 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 what it is isn't it it's something that you feel i can't wash off and no matter how much scrubbing i do no matter how much rebuilding i do no matter how much bodybuilding i do for going back to the body image idea no matter how much i tone up and shave and 
prettify myself, I can't remove that stain. I can't dispel that voice that says no good, that says ugly, that says broken, that says unworthy. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a haunting. I mean, it's a, it's a ghost. It's, yeah, that's, um, it, it's something that lives in you. And it's interesting how, how, how movies, how movies cover this territory really well. Um, you know, movies in general are, they're the great sort of uh, provocation of our psyches. You know, they're, they're, they're the stick that reaches out and pokes at our wounds and pokes, you know, poke, they poke, you know, it's a stick that reaches out and pokes at our fears, that pokes at our desires. And the, the relationship we have with, with movies, it's, it's a relationship that we have with ourselves. It's, it's the relationship we have with the, with the unexpressed, with the unspoken, um, with the, the, the unidentified and with the hidden, with that which is hidden within us and movies in their combination of, of image, of, of sound, of narrative, of, you know, of dynamic narrative emotion, of tales of revenge, um, you know, of, of tales of cruelty, of tales of triumph, um, of tales of, you know, destruction, whatever it might be. You know, movies tap into something so powerful in us. And it's interesting, the, um, the great English film critic, David Thompson, who I know at some point, certainly he was a writer for either the, the Guardian or their Sunday edition, The Observer, but uh, has been based in the States for a long time and has written many, many great movie books. He's a fantastic movie critic. And he has a book that he wrote in 2012, I think it came out, called The Big Screen, which is his attempt to make sense of our relationship with movies and with the cinema and with that dark room, that big screen. And it's intensely personal, but just written with his, his, his wonderful prose, his amazing insights and his candid subjectivity. And in the prologue to that book, and this will just give you just a brief, a brief flash of uh, how he writes because um, he, he really is I think he's really exceptional and uh, I'm just going to read you a couple of paragraphs from the, the prologue to this book uh, as I said which is called The Big Screen um, let me just let me just find it here uh, he says we used to believe the screen was there just to help us see the pictures the story and the illusion of life but we are warier now and we guess that all these screens are the real thing. Fabulous tools, of course, but subtle barriers between us and life. We are all of us 
our own screens. We let the imagery of the world play on us, just as large theatrical screens carried every movie with impartiality. I have always been intrigued by the idea of screens retaining something of the spirit of all their films, of their all being there at the same time. It's a version of consciousness. In that mood, imagine the Fernando Ray from The French Connection, 1971, becoming the Ray in Bunel's The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, 1972, on the same white sheet. The films are only a year apart, and it's positively the same man. So this book has a lot of information and film titles, a lot of movies you might want to see or see again, but it is personal and reflective. It tries to uncover the secret nature of film and the way it aids our dreaming. The book goes into raptures and it turns frosty. It has opinions, none of which is meant to be authoritative or decisive. They are there to urge you into your own. I hope it is useful and entertaining, but its chief purpose is just to make us think what movies have done to us and wonder how we feel about that. It's a love story, but you have to wait for the ending. Yeah, great stuff. I love it. Um, David Thompson, that's... uh, Thompson without a P, T-H-O-M-S-O-N. Great, great, great film writer. But anyway, further to that, I just wanted to do a sort of a a roundup for the last part of the podcast of just a few movies and uh, actors and characters who have been very visceral expressions of of shame uh, on the screen. And... I'll start with um, Steve McQueen, the not the actor Steve McQueen, the American actor, but the British film director Steve McQueen, who directed, amongst other things, Hunger and 12 Years a Slave. Um, but he also directed Shame. So I'm going to start with a very literal, a very literal example of what I'm talking about. He did the movie Shame in 2011 with Michael Fassbender, who he has used in, yeah, three or four of his movies at this stage, Michael Fassbender and uh, the English actress uh, Kerry Mulligan. And the the film focuses on Fassbender's character, Brandon, who, if I recall, he is actually playing an Irish guy in the movie, but he's a New York guy, uh, works in some kind of, you know, business sector. But he is sort of, you know, walking robotically, unfeelingly through life with a with a sex addiction fundamentally and he uses sex workers and pornography and you know it's a very the the film very candidly depicts all of that but what we learn through the the story of the movie when his sister emerges on the scene is that they're both kind of broken or traumatized by some family secret and the the movie never makes explicit what that that trauma was or what that pain was that um that they still carry in their adult lives um but i remember i've only watched it once um and i remember really enjoying it i remember finding it very thought-provoking and very 
it, I don't know if I found it particularly moving. Certainly there is a cathartic release at the end of the movie. Um, but typical for the work of Steve McQueen, a very atmospheric, textured, uh, sensory sort of experience. Um, I mean, the, the feeling of the movie comes, I guess, through his his directorial choices the, the the camera work the lighting the 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 soundtrack because we have a, a deadened protagonist leading us through the whole thing but it i guess it, it does capture very successfully the 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 altered state of that kind of shame so instead of instead of bringing us into the outer world. I mean, we see the outer world, but McQueen very successfully captures the representation of the outer walk, the outer performance, as something that we simply don't find credible. And where we dwell in that movie is in the world of of Brandon's, uh, of his pain, of his inability to escape whatever that shame is, whether there was sexual abuse in the past or violence um we don't know um it's it, it, it it's not clear well it certainly wasn't clear to me maybe i completely missed something um but that's not a that's not a bad place to start like and it's you know it, it's as literal as it can get the bloody movie's called shame but it is worth checking out and it's another great fassbender performance um you know, further to my comments last week that there aren't that many really unique or exceptional actors. Fassbender does have something. He has something that is that is exceptional. There's something about him. Um, I don't know if it's his intelligence or his coldness. Um, yeah, I don't know. And it's not for me to comment on his, his beauty. I've, I've heard women say they find him very, very attractive. Well, fair play to you, Michael. I hope that's going well for you. Um, another... Another character in the sort of the, the family secret territory or the family trauma, family shame territory is Nick Nolte's character in Warrior. Uh, I was reminded this morning, I was listening yet again to uh, The Rewatchables, uh, that great podcast on movies that are worth revisiting. And they were talking about Gavin O'Connor's 2011 movie Warrior about two brothers who end up fighting each other in a mixed martial arts competition and the story is about the unpacking of their trauma um that that's the sort of that's the story that runs alongside their emergence as very potent mixed martial artists but nick nolte he is the father the older father now a recovering alcoholic and it's clear that he was the agent of their trauma and he becomes embroiled in their lives again when one of the brothers, played by Tom Hardy, the other brother is Joel Edgerton, uh, persuades the dad to train him. And late in the movie, this furious, this broiling, fuming, internally you know, volcanic Tom Hardy character, he just, uh, he kind of unleashes on the dad and exposes Nick Nolte as the dad exposes his his shame and his guilt and his his pain um and Nick the Nick Nolte character has been on his journey of recovery and has has sort of recovered his life somewhat 
But the son is like, no way. I'm not letting you away with this because you did all this stuff. And the the attack, verbal, verbal attack from Hardy just completely destroys the father and leads to a calamitous relapse where and it's just a brilliant, brilliant performance by Nolte uh, of, you know, you just kind of go, he was barely holding on. I mean, that's the dance. That's the, the dance of the addict, the dance of the alcoholic. And it's a extraordinarily painful scene where you see him completely unspooled in his hotel room, having got into every bit of alcohol in the in the the uh, the little fridge in the hotel room, um, the mini bar, and he is absolutely unhinged and raw and manic in his in his own wrestle with the damage that he wrought. Um, but the performance is a thing of beauty. Nick Nolte, he's a, he's a rare bird himself. Um, so that's one as well that's worth checking out. And for some reason, another character actor came into my head, and that is Jackie Earl Haley, okay? Now, you might not know that name, and I certainly didn't, but he came uh, on my radar... When he was in, um, he was in Watchmen, the uh, Zack Snyder movie version of the groundbreaking graphic novel of the same name, Watchmen. Of course, it was made into a great uh, HBO TV series last year, wasn't it? But in that movie, this actor, Jackie Earl Rayleigh, plays a character called Rorschach. And uh, Rorschach is... Uh, this sort of vigilante type superhero. I don't think he doesn't really have superhero powers. He just has a, a mask which has the psychologist's ink blot on a white background. And that's the like the Rorschach test where psychologists hold up a, an image, blobs a blob of black, and you respond to it with your whatever, whatever, whatever speaks to in you. And in any case, he's this heavy kind of vigilante character in that movie. And there's a f- part of his story is a particularly vicious um, meeting of justice on a paedophile. Um, and yeah, he's just this great character in the movie. And there's something of all the characters in the movie, there's something about him, that actor that brought uh, something very believably human and anguished to the role. And that doesn't touch on shame particularly, but... He had previously, not long before being in Watchmen, he had played a, he himself had played a paedophile in a movie called Little Children, which I think is directed by Todd McCarthy and Patrick Wilson, who was also in Watchmen, and Jennifer Connelly were also in that movie. But in that movie, he has this extraordinary scene where he goes on a date with uh, some woman from the neighborhood. I don't know if the mother has sorted out the date but they go on the date and we follow them on their evening. They have this kind of awkward but sort of sweet dinner together. And we think, oh, this is nice. Like he's a, you know, he's a convicted paedophile. And he's sort of, again, trying to recover his life. And we think, okay, here's his here's his shot at redemption. Now he can form a relationship with this nice woman who I think was played by Jane Addams. Um, who's particularly good in these kind of vulnerable female roles. But in any case, they get to the end of the night and I think she's driving perhaps. So she gave him a lift 
And she's kind of saying goodnight to him and the camera's stuck on his face and she's kind of going, okay, goodnight, that was really nice. But then we realise to our horror that like he's staring at her really earnestly but he's he's masturbating as she's saying goodbye to him. Oh my God, it's absolutely grim. But the uh, again, the there's something in that mix of of shame and compulsion and awkwardness and sort of self dishonoring that um you know it 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 feels like it's it's relevant to the 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 larger thrust of what we're talking about today now to put a cap on him and this still speaks to shame and this shame now is going to become class shame what i realized when i looked him up back then he was actually in the 1979 film breaking away which is a brilliant sort of coming of age a small town america movie directed by uh, peter yates and in that movie there was a little quartet of young actors so there was dennis christopher who was the protagonist a young guy who was obsessed with uh, being a professional cyclist and his pals were dennis quaid and daniel stern um and then jackie earl haley was the fourth member of the crew and those guys were like the working class kids from the town and they were they were referred to in a derogatory way as cutters because their parents had worked in the local quarry i can't remember where it was set but i remember seeing that movie as a as a young guy and it was the jackie earl haley character who sort of plucked at my heartstrings because there's some scene where they get into a fight with some i think richer kids from the town or slagging them off, calling them cutters. And the Jackie Earl Haley character, his name is Moocher, I think, in the movie. But he just loses the plot. And he's quite a small guy. And I don't know if he attacks the guys or he might even punch a petrol pump. Uh, he punches something, some inanimate object and smashes glass. I remember that. And I remember just the sting of shame that that character felt. And he captured it so, so well. Um, so that idea of class shame, poverty shame, um, is very, very potent in the movies. Uh, and I was thinking about that idea and reminding myself of how that got flipped in Goodwill Hunting. When early enough in the movie, uh, Matt Damon's character, uh, the Will Hunting of the, of the title, who's basically you know, a mathematical genius, but is hardcore working class kid, um he's uh he and his pals are knocking around the university bars of harvard i guess and they get into a uh, bit of a bit of a cockfight with some of the sort of preppy harvard kids and one in particular um is i don't know the actor's name but i know he played a convict a prisoner in the hbo series oz I remember saying to my wife, I'll hear you like this. It's about Australia. <laughs> but actually, it wasn't. It was about a maximum security prison where there was lots of uh, male anal rape and stuff like that. So it was pretty brutal. But this guy, this actor was in that show as sort of a an intellectually um, disabled younger brother of one of the major players in the prison. And he used to talk to or with sock puppets. Anyway, he was in Goodwill Hunting 
and Matt Damon um, basically destroys him in a, a bit of banter where Matt Damon reveals his intellectual chops and the guy is trying to be all suave and chat. He might be trying to chat up Minnie Driver, who's the love interest in the movie. Um, but it's a famous scene because as Matt Damon walks away from the bar, he's managed to get Minnie Driver's number. And he's looking at the long-haired dude on the other side of the glass and slams the number up against the window. It's like, how do you like them apples? Uh, so it's great early triumph for the Damon character. But um, that's the, you know, flipping, flipping the script on the shame narrative. And finally... One more movie before I go. I was also thinking of uh, Carrie, Brian De Palma's movie. I mean, I, I always, I used to, I used to always think of it when I was younger as a horror movie, but it's sort of, it's, 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 it feels like it's so much more than that. It's this kind of psychosexual coming of age movie, which starts with that extraordinary sequence where Sissy Spacek is in the girl's locker room at her school and she's having a shower. And she gets her period and you start to see the blood flowing between her legs down the, the plug hole and you're sort of feeling her her anguish and her discomfort because I gather I can't remember from the movie if it's, her, if it's her first ever period or it's just she's been caught off guard and she's absolutely mortified and she's there naked in the shower and instead of being embraced by the sorority of her female schoolmates they all start mocking her mercilessly and throwing tampons at her and it's an awful scene of excruciating humility um or sorry excruciating humiliation and you know you're, you're just on side you're on side with carrie right from that moment and you i realized when i was thinking about it that the you know blood the you know blood is the, the the dominant the dominating and horrifying motif of carrie uh she's living with her tyrannical puritanical crazy mother played i think by piper laurie who at that stage i i, I think i saw carrie later in life but I, I i'd only known piper laurie from um twin peaks first i later realized she was in the hustler with paul newman as she's alcoholic in that brilliant performance anyway but the sissy spacek character carrie goes on that journey and like it's the the humiliation of of not being i guess not being in control of her body um which i guess a lot of women can relate to um and then the exposure the lack of support from the sisterhood um and the discomfort of i guess the implications the, the you know what having a period represents to a young girl um in terms of the change of the body and that ties back into the the sexualization or the sexual readiness the, the you know the, the the childbearing readiness and how you know that's I mean, I didn't even talk about that. That's a whole other part of what gets discarded um, in young women. But anyway, you know, Carrie's journey of, you know, the stain of blood and the blood being humiliation and the humiliation bringing shame. But then in Carrie's case, that shame turning to rage and that rage turning to the desire for revenge. And of course, infamously, 
she's the victim of a horrible prank where she has been you know brought forward i can't remember she did the the, the, her classmates conspire to make her the prom queen but only to dump an enormous kind of vat of pig's blood over her which is the last dumb prank they ever do because then she uses her her powers to destroy them all in that tour de force sequence of the palmas which if you do any research you realize that that was an extraordinary um feat of technical filmmaking um in terms of what he achieved with the camera to follow the journey uh the bur you know the, the the point of view of going to where the blood is above carry high up in the um the uh whatever you call the bloody <laughs> up there near the ceiling above is it the gantry um where the lights would be for their prom ball whatever uh but again that kind of sexual shame and the body shame um brilliant brilliantly yeah, that's not brilliant but brilliantly done brilliantly depicted brilliantly uh provocative of our psychic dread in in the capable hands of uh, of Brian De Palma. Okay, so look, I don't know if I made all the points there. I did have I did have a notion. I wanted to go into sort of Catholicism and original sin and sexual guilt and all of that, but holy hell, how many podcasts would that take? Um, yeah. So there you go. Look, it's been it's been a bit of a journey. Um, I went from a, a Facebook post and got through quite a bit of stuff. I hope you've been able to to follow the thread. I hope some of this has spoken to you. And I hope you might even go and check out some of those movies that I've referenced. Um yeah, I yeah, there you go. Look at that's that's it. That's all I've got. I mean what's the conclusion? Um shame. Shame is uh it's a terrible thing. It's a it's a such a you know it's it's a it's a terrible thing when it's it's kind of self-inflicted it's a self you know self-inflicted self-administered and something that you can't shake i don't think there's anything wrong with feeling the shame of maybe when you know you've behaved badly and you want to own that i mean i'm 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 putting my hand up and out like that's how i feel occasionally when i'm talking referring to these angry outbursts as a parent and I don't mind. I'm happy to be ashamed of that and own it and try to repair it. But shame that is undeserved, unwarranted shame that dogs you like, um, like I said, like a ghost that won't go away. Uh, that's a shame that needs to be got rid of. That's a shame that you need to kick the hell out of your house that you have every right to disown to reject to to understand the root of it and to to give yourself permission to let it go to give yourself permission uh to to scourge it like that stain it is and to i don't know i mean i I want to use the word forgive you know if it's undeserved, you didn't do anything to deserve that. You didn't do anything to be, you know, to receive that message. You didn't do anything to embed that message in your, in your soul, in your, your sense of self. And 
therefore you are not guilty of anything and if that's the feeling that you've been carrying you need to forgive yourself you're not responsible for that and I'm no psychologist and God knows there are people out there who need a lot of help to negotiate and overcome that hurdle and I certainly know you know women and you know the, the, the women that I've been involved with in my relationships who've been touched by that and it's an incredibly destructive thing and I wouldn't wish it on anyone and I've certainly tried in my own feeble way I've tried not to contribute to that um, because I don't value it and I, I try to see it for what it is so what's the what's the final takeaway it comes back to what does it come back to it comes back to to loving yourself to valuing yourself to seeing your own worth and not placing that value or that worth in perfect skin or a perfectly formed leg or stomach or bum or whatever um that's not what it's about be healthy be well be strong be active and everyone else can just feck off okay that's it okay listen thank you for listening you can throw me a bit of support if you want using the supporter link in the description or using uh, the patreon link which is patreon.com forward slash the clear out please subscribe please you know subscribe follow throw me some love on social media spread the word if you like what you're listening to i'd appreciate any help i can get okay take care thanks for listening mind yourselves all the best bye